So that's Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word accept it and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. This is God's word. Let me add my welcome to Rosie. It's great to see you here. If I haven't met you, my name is Pete. I'm one of the ministers here, and we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. That's on. I think that is on. Um, In the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're looking at this chapter this week. Now, If you've been with us over the past few weeks as we've been going through Mark's Gospel, one of the questions that starts to emerge, indeed one of the questions Mark himself is asking this week, is why it is that in the midst of apparent popularity, the crowds flocking to Jesus, that so many of the people that we would expect to accept Jesus actually end up rejecting him. So I don't know if you've noticed as we've been going through, or indeed if you're familiar with Mark's Gospel in general, that the Pharisees 
The people who would have said they were praying and waiting for Messiah, God's King, to come and to deliver them, have Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, God's Son, the chosen King, right in front of their very eyes. They see his miracles. They hear his teaching. They're right there when he makes the claims about himself. And yet, by and large, almost to a man, they reject him. Similarly, the crowds, they have been flocking to Jesus. And yet, as we go on in Mark's gospel, we start to see that more and more they want Jesus only for what they can get from him, healing, deliverance, rather than for him as who he is for him himself. And then, surprisingly, last week in chapter 3, we had his very own family, his mother, his brothers, uh, come to him. And they wanted to control him rather than to allow his loving control of their lives. Why is it that the people who should accept him reject him? And I think that's a particular problem for us to grapple with because we tend to think that if we had been there, if we had seen Jesus do the miracles, if we just had the enough evidence, if it was clear enough, then we'd believe. We normally think that actually any lack of faith that I have would be fixed by more information. And yet, as we go through it, one of the challenges is that the people back then didn't doubt the miracles Jesus did. They agreed with those. But they frequently questioned how he did them. We had the religious authorities saying that it was by the prince of demons, Satan, that he cast out demons, and they rejected him. If our problem is primarily lack of information, why is it that the first-hand witnesses struggled to trust and believe Jesus? And part of the answer that we're going to get to is that our problem is not so much lack of information, but lack of inclination. We need to listen well. We need to engage with this issue of listening. Now, listening is something which I probably don't need to tell you is something our culture in the West is not very good at doing. I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure you'd like to tell me your virtue afterwards about what a great listener you are. But by and large, I don't think we can disagree that the Western culture is not good at listening. I mean... We have so many different things that are distracting us, right? You know, you had that experience where you're having a conversation with someone and then there's that buzz in your pocket and immediately you're thinking, why is my phone buzzing? I thought, you know, have I had a text message? Who, who is that text message from? Can I pull my phone out and look now whilst continuing the conversation or is that rude and I'm gonna lose this person in the conversation? And then before you know where you are, you've lost yourself in the conversation. You have no idea what they're saying anymore. So you fake it, don't you? Smile, uh-huh, uh-huh, as you try to grabble and get a, scrabble and get a foothold back in the conversation. But you're not listening well. Or whether it's the other problem that our culture has, which is the desire for brevity. I mean, we are very often talked about as the I know culture. We tend to think that if I've read a tweet, or maybe the slightly longer form of it, a blog, then I know about the issue. In the Hebrew way of thinking, you only knew about an issue when you had read up on it, had discussed it, had internalized it, and that internalization had worked out into a life implementation of it such that you could live wisely in the light of it. Today, we think if I can Google it, then I know about it. That creates a terrible burden, by the way, whereby we walk around telling ourselves, I know, but not able to do life very well. Or if it's the problem of when we are in a conversation, we are often using just the pauses and the breaths in the conversation as an opportunity for us to speak in, to be first, to tell everyone what we think, because ultimately, isn't that what it's all about? We're a culture shouting at one another. Look at the political discourse. Rather than listening to one another, engaging with each other, really hearing what we are saying, we are not good 
at listening. And so this is a really timely passage for us as we see God's call to us to listen. We're going to attack it in four different ways. We're going to first of all look at the practice of listening to God's Word. Then we're going to look at the spiritual dynamics of listening to God's Word. Then we're going to look at the centrality of the heart in listening to God's Word. And lastly, the importance of bearing fruit in listening to God's Word. Let's start first of all by looking at the practice of listening to God's Word. Look down with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So here we have a familiar scene. We've had similar scenes like this through Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Similarly, a large crowd gathering. But here Jesus' tactic with the crowd is slightly different. Verse 2, he taught them many things by parables. A parable is a kind of extended illustration that is deliberately in some ways opaque, that is deliberately obscure, to provoke people to listen and to think and to really engage with it. And so Jesus tells this parable, and verse 13, in some ways, this is the parable that if you get, you will get all parables, and if you don't get this, you will get no parables. So this isn't isn't just any parable. In some ways, this is the archetypal parable. And so as we listen to this, we've got to engage. And look at how Jesus starts. Verse 3, listen. Now, you know, you only need to tell someone to listen when they're not listening. If you don't know that, come and spend 24 hours with me and my three-year-old and my one-year-old, and you will experience that. You have to say, listen. We do this thing at home where I say, Oliver, turn your ears on. And he goes, beep. And then in theory, he's now listening because he's rather being distracted by all the toys around him. But, you know, you do it with adults. Someone's walking into the road, watch out. You only say that because they're not watching out. So when Jesus says here, verse 3, listen to the crowds, it's because he knows their default is they're not listening. They just want to get some healing or some food or something from him. And he says, no, 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 listen to me. So friends, in love, he would say to you today, listen. And before we race through this parable and you say, Pete, just give me the punchline, let's get to the second half where Jesus explains it. What we're going to do now is we're going to try and reconsider what it would be actually be like to really engage with this as it was first said. Don't just rush through. Pause. That's part of the problem today. We want everything so quickly. But to really listen well, we have to engage, to slow down. So would you now with me, as we engage in the practice of listening to God's word, slow down. And let's see how it works. He tells a story, verse 3, of a farmer went out to sow his seed. It's a familiar image for the people of his day. And initially, the farmer looks like he hasn't been to agricultural college. Verse 4, as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly. And so as he goes along sowing his seed, he seems to be sowing it in all the wrong places. Rather than on carefully tilled and prepared soil, he's chucking on the baked hard ground where the seed is never going to take. And so, as the parable is told, you're thinking, oh, this is a parable about a farmer. Indeed, that's what we title it, right? The parable of the sower. But then the camera angle of the story, as Jesus masterfully tells it and draws us in, changes. And we realize we're told nothing about the farmer and his so-called deficiencies. The focus shifts, and so we immediately are caught off guard, to the seed and to the soil. All of the detail is on those things. That immediately causes you to pause. What I had thought Jesus was talking about, he's talking about something different. 
and you start to think, what is the seed? What is the soil? Why is it that out of four types of soil and seed interaction, three prove unfruitful? And you're thinking, is there any fruit at all? And then as you go on, you get more detail of the soil-seed interaction. Look at verse 6. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root, no fruit there. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, no fruit there. And then verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil. Finally, it came up, grew, and produced quite a crop. 30, 60, 100 times over. In other words, an abundant harvest that more than makes up for the apparent profligacy of the first three types of soil. Now, as Jesus finishes, notice what he says again, verse 9. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He restates it. Listen. And then you're given an existential choice. You're on a knife edge. What are you going to do? Some, of course, will go, why can't he just be clear? I mean, it's just so annoying. Why all this smoke and mirrors? Why this parable? I can't be bothered with this. I only came for a healing anyway, Jesus. And they shrug their shoulders and they roll their eyes and they throw their hands up in the air and they don't listen. Others, something different takes place. They start to chat in their, maybe in their own internal monologue. I wonder what this is all about. I mean, the soil, there seem different types of soil. What's Jesus getting at with this? He's clearly trying to make a point, but I don't get it straight away. What's the seed? What's the soil? Where am I in this story? Am I a soil in some sense? And if so, what is that saying about me? Which one would I be? They start to chat it through with their neighbor. Did you get it? I didn't get all of it. No, what were the types of soil again? You see how the conversation starts? They're listening. You see how active listening is. You see how communal listening is. They're engaging. And that brings us, as those two very different groups engage in two very different ways, to the second point, the spiritual dynamic of listening to God's words. Because Jesus very quickly, when he's taken away with the disciples in verses 10 and following, says this, verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, these are famously tricky verses from Isaiah chapter 6, but let me pull out a couple of things about them. First of all, notice how Jesus is saying that the spiritual dynamic of listening to his word is that a sifting is going on. There are some people, verse 11, who are given the secret of the kingdom of God. Notice, interestingly, they are the ones, like the disciples, who have come to him and asked him. In other words, they don't get it all. They don't get it immediately, but they're saying, Jesus, help me. What does it say? That is the type of listening he's looking for. Others, though, they would be the ones who say, yeah, yeah, you know, I heard it. Yeah, I understand God's word. Yeah, I couldn't really be bothered with that. It didn't quite fulfill my expectations. They say that they see but they never perceive. They say that they hear, but they never really understand. In other words, we like to think in a consumer culture, we sit above God's word, listening to God's word and evaluating God's word, but here's the thing, there's a judo flip there. God sits above us, his word is enthroned above us, and his word sifts, and if we're not careful, judges us. A few years ago, I was driving along listening to the radio, 
and um, they were having a radio discussion with a pop star about the tendency there was at that time, particularly in rap genre, to bring more and more classical music like Beethoven into rap music to give it a sense of grandeur. They were asking this particular pop star whether it was something that he himself did and what he felt of classical music in general, and they were talking about Mozart, and they said, what do you make of Mozart? And in a very careless, offhand way, the um, pop star said, yeah, I don't really like classical music. I think Mozart's really overrated. And there was a kind of a groan in the radio studio, and you could kind of hear three million people groaning around the UK as well, as you kind of thought, yeah, that says nothing about Mozart and far too much about you. Of course, I'm not saying Mozart's, you know, the person you've got to love, but you can't doubt his genius. And so if you try and sit in judgment of that, it says a lot about you. Well, how much more with God's perfect word? Yeah, I didn't really get the parable. Yeah, I didn't think it was well told. Yeah, I don't like that passage. Yeah, that one's a bit controversial, doesn't really fit with our culture today. It says nothing about God, my friend. It says a lot about you. God's word sifts us. Our response to God's word diagnoses us. It shows us where we're really at. And actually, the danger is, in the context of the parable, that God's word can judge us as well. There is a sense in which if we don't come to God's word with a humility and a desire to engage, even when we find it difficult, whether that's intellectually challenging or whether that's much more likely challenging our presuppositions, if we dismiss it, there is a sense in which it will merely confirm us in our blindness. We will become more blind. Our ears will become more deaf. Our understanding will become more ignorant. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 6. It's worth remembering the context of Isaiah. The first five chapters of Isaiah point out the pride, the idolatry, that means the false worship, the social injustice of a nation that had become high-minded, thinking it was above God, particularly the leaders. And in that context, God says, I'm going to send a prophet, but I'm going to send him with a very unusual ministry. The vast majority of what Isaiah says was rejected by the people of his day. If you like, in the vernacular of the parable, three out of four people who heard Isaiah's message rolled their eyes, said it's never going to happen, judgment will never fall, and just walked away more ignorant, more blind, more deaf. But in the context of Isaiah, there was one group, the so-called remnant, who listened with humble hearts and received God's word and listened to God's word, and from them came an abundant harvest leading to salvation. You see? The practice of listening to God's word and the spiritual dynamic of listening to God's word. Do you think you're above God and his word as a consumer? No, we must sit with humility under God's word, saying, Lord, I'm your servant. Help me to listen. Brings us on to the third point now as we finally get to the explanation. Well done for waiting. We're on the centrality of the heart in listening to God's word. In the parable, I wonder if you notice, there are external factors happening. Um, so we have heat coming down. We have thorns growing up. And as Jesus explains those things, we see that what he's getting at is Satan seeking to snatch the word away, verse 15. We see that he's talking about trouble or persecution in verse 17. We see that he's talking about life circumstances that could cause us to worry or wealth that could deceive us or 
things that people desire or deeply desire, as the word actually is in verse 19. But here's a question for you to answer in the quiet of your own hearts right now. What determines the growth of the seed of God's word according to the parable? Just look down. What determines the growth of the seed of God's word in this parable? Is it the external factors? Do they ultimately determine whether the seed takes or not? No, it's not, is it? It's the soil. The soil is the determining factor, and the soil here is intended to be our hearts. You get that particularly in verse 19, because you notice these are all heart attitudes, the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, having a deceived heart, and the desires, literally epithemere in Greek, which means the excessive desires for things. These are all heart attitudes, longings and dispositions. In other words, that is what the soil is all about. It's about the soil of your heart. And you see, the reason that the seed doesn't take is because of the type of heart that is receiving it. A quote that I often use is from Archbishop Cranmer, the 16th century theologian who in many ways founded the Church of England in its modern form. And to be paraphrased by a theologian called Ashley Null, he said this, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the intellect justifies. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the intellect justifies. We like to think, don't we, that we are rational beings who make rational decisions. And therefore, very often, the normal disposition is, if I don't believe in Jesus, it's because I haven't got enough information, it's not clear. And the Bible would say, yes, information is important, but your problem is lack of inclination. You don't want to believe. There's no lack of evidence. So I wonder, what does your heart want deep down? Because look down at the things in verse 19 and notice how they don't determine, the circumstances don't determine the disposition of the heart, but the heart determines the response. Think about the worries of life. Why is it that around churches, if you've been around churches for a while or speaking to people, for some people, life circumstances that can be worrying, anxiety-causing, can on one hand for some people be the very reason they are convinced that God does not exist that he has not come through for them, that he has not answered their prayers, and so they will walk away bit by bit from their faith. And yet for other people you've observed that in the context of worry, they have drawn into a relationship with God more deeply. They have discovered a renewed interest of prayer. They have seen God answer prayers for them, and they are firmer in their convictions than they ever were. The same set of circumstances and polar opposite responses. Or think of wealth. Notice wealth is not the problem. The deceit of wealth, well, what is deceitful about wealth? For some people, when they get money, this happens, and I've seen it with good friends of mine. They start to think, I earned it. I achieved it. Look at what I have done. It's my wealth, and therefore I now have status. I can open more doors than before, and they become proud and arrogant to look down their noses at other people. And when you talk to them about potentially being generous with their wealth, yeah, I'll give some, but it'll be on my terms, but what do I get back for it? It's like a transaction. With other people I've come across, they have a lot of money, and they have a humility about them. When you talk to them, they say, it's not my money. It's God's gift to me. And it's for me to work out how best to steward it to bless other people. They realize that wealth doesn't define them. They hold lightly to it. Two very different responses to wealth. Why? One group is deceived by it in their heart, the other group see it for what it is and use it as an opportunity to bless others and to glorify God. 
or think of desires, these deep, excessive desires that are talked about in verse 19. I don't know, a desire for career, a desire for reputation, a desire for acceptance and respect. Some people, their desire for their career drives them so hard that all other concerns start to be squeezed out of their life. People even say about them, seems like their career has become their God, seems to be a substitute for their relationship with God. Or people desiring a relationship, sometimes they pray and pray and pray and they don't get it, sometimes they do get it and the relationship breaks down and they rail against God, why haven't you given me or why have you given me a dysfunctional relationship? And it becomes the reason they can't trust God, when for others, their career is a place where they glorify God and they give it to God daily and they see it as a forum in which to worship God and relationships are something to be entrusted to God even when it doesn't work out well. They push into God's relationship then and say, Lord, help me in this relationship. They grow in the midst of that context. Two very different responses, the same set of circumstances. Do you see? It's the soil of the heart. Your heart determines your fruitfulness. Your heart determines how you listen. We've been looking at this in the Real Change course, which we do in our Inspire groups. There is heat in life. It's tough circumstances you face. But the heat merely draws out the response. It merely leads to thorns or fruitfulness, depending on what you are rooted in. Can I ask you, what are you rooted in? What is it you really want in your heart? Because if you have a soft heart, you will bear fruit. You know, in children's songs, whenever it comes to listening, of course, we all do the Christian actions, you know, that's for listening, right? That's for head, that's for heart. What organ do you listen with? Not primarily. You listen with your heart. Your heart determines your response. And so are you aware of your heart responses to God's word? Lastly, the importance of fruitfulness in listening to God's word. Do you see that it's not just enough to leave it at a heart level? Look at the end of verse 19. These things that choke the word, what do they do? They make it unfruitful. And what's the contrast, verse 20? Others like seeds sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. And what a crop, 30, 60, even 100 times over. I love how practical there is. There is no privatized spirituality. You can't get away with saying, I believe it, I trust Jesus. Jesus knows, but no one else sees. No, it's not worked out then it's not really worked in. If it's not worked out in your life, it hasn't really worked into your heart. That's the way that it works. You say you believe, James would say, show me. Show me by the fruit of your good deeds. You say, I feel very generous. Great, you feel very generous. <laughs> Let's see that generosity. You say, I want to trust God by not giving into this sin. Wonderful, praise the Lord. Stop giving into the sin. You say, well, I can't. I'm finding it really difficult. That's down to your heart, my friend. Let's pray. Are you really up for it? Do you really want to bear fruit? Are you just talking a good game? God won't be deceived. Godly living always works out in fruitful lives. Godly desires always change in actions. Well, you say, but my heart, it just sometimes feels so resistant to God's word. I know. Here's the punchline. Even as a pastor, sometimes mine does too. But how do you respond when you feel that? Well, you need a softened heart. And how do you soften a heart? In one sense, you can't. Only God can. 
And so you pray, you say, Lord, soften my hard heart. Give me a heart that's eager to receive your word. Pray and trust God that he will answer that prayer. But then you can also do something about it by God's grace as you pray. You know what, soften a hard, what softens a hard heart? The cross of Jesus Christ. Because we've not mentioned him much, but he has told the parable, and he is really the center figure of this parable, though he's never fully mentioned. And if you want to soften your heart, just like the sun melts ice in the thaw of spring, so Jesus Christ and his cross melt even the hardest heart. It's only when you see that you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you, and yet you are so loved that he was prepared to die for you, that your heart and the layers that we put on the outside to protect from other people and from God suddenly start to melt away. There was quite a famous sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon on exactly this question, how do you soften a hard heart? Here's a brief excerpt from it. He said, it is not looking to Jesus as God only which affects the heart, but looking to this same Lord and God as crucified for us. We see the Lord pierced, and so the piercing of our own heart begins. When the Lord reveals Jesus to us, we begin to have our sins also revealed. We see who it was that was pierced, and this deeply stirs our sorrow and softens our heart. It is he that died for me. He who only has immortality, he died for me. He was all glory and power, yet he died for me. He was all tenderness and grace, and yet he died. Infinite goodness was hung upon a tree. That was done for me. Do you know that? That's the only thing that melts a hard heart. When you really get a sweet sense of Jesus on the cross dying for you. Yes, for you. As the words of the hymn put it. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Did he devote that sacred head for such a one as I? Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart with thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. When you feel hard-hearted to God, friends, look at the cross. Let that soften your heart. And if that doesn't soften your heart, pray to God. How could that not soften your heart? The Son of God given for you? The Son of God dying for you? Has anything greater been done for you ever? If you feel cold-hearted to that, drop to your knees and pray. Find a friend and say, my friend, I feel cold-hearted to this. There's something wrong with me. Pray for me. Preach the gospel to me. Help me to see it. And your heart will be softened. Will you listen to the one who's died for you? When he speaks to you, when he says, listen, oh, you know he's got your best interests at heart. He's died for you. Does he have any other interest at heart? Are there particular areas of your life, maybe, where God has been knocking on the door, speaking to you, that issue? We've got to talk about that issue. Your friend's actually been talking to you about it as well, probably. That's normally my experience. But you've been pushing back. Not there, not there. Pretending the mask's up. God's there. Friend, let me in. He wants to do a work in you. Don't resist him. Others of you maybe have heard the gospel many times, 
but as you hear it, you try to sit in judgment of it. What do I make of it? Is there enough evidence for it? And yet, as you listen, there's also something, there's another dynamic you've been aware of and you've been resisting. It is God coming to you, God pulling at you, God saying, open up to me. He's saying to you now, stop resisting. Soften your heart now to him. Listen to him. Open your heart to me, my friend, and you'll bear much fruit. There will be a glorious harvest and much joy, but soften your heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we all, by disposition, have hard hearts. A soft heart is not natural to the human condition born into sin and into a rejection of you. And yet you have come and you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have sent your Spirit to apply the cross to our lives so that our hearts would soften. Lord God, have mercy on us. Please, Lord God, would your word not judge us. And as it sifts us, would we be those who respond with a soft, eager heart, desiring to put it into practice and to bear much fruit. Help us, we pray, Lord God, for Jesus' sake.